Hi, and welcome to the NDRC podcast, where we speak with entrepreneurs and investors from right across the startup ecosystem. In this episode, we hear from Dermot O'Shea, co-founder and joint CEO of Tauglas, an IoT company. Recently, Dermot spoke with NDRC and a collection of entrepreneurs, describing the journey from sales to startup to scale. Angela Duffy hosted the call, and you'll hear her interacting with Dermot throughout, who begins with the early days of the company. Having travelled Asia and met co-founder and co-CEO Ronan Quinlan while in Taiwan, conversations became ideas, and ideas became opportunities. We bought from the we bought the business in we bought the business uh, starting off, and we were both in sales, um, but we were both have a love for technology, um, and. I don't think we had a specific idea, but we both were very ambitious. We both wanted to have our own business, um, and we both, you know, felt had the same viewpoint in terms of Irish startups um, that we wanted to create a strong Irish electronics brand. And not, you know, our feeling was that a lot of Irish startups sell their companies um, too early, right? Um, especially to American companies, or they chase the funding dream, or you know, that type of thing, whereas we kind of wanted to do our own thing. Um, Ronan had already, you know, started um, a business plan with it, with the name Tau Gla, which is because he, w- he was living in Tau Yuen, originally from Glasnevin. Um, and his, his idea was actually to um, license Irish and UK IP into the Taiwanese OEM industry, whereas me personally, I was I was a salesman. I was looking for widgets to sell, you know, to be almost a manufacturer's rep. Um, so we said we'd, we'd start with both, really, you know, and, and develop the ideas from there. So we, we kind of started with that. Um, and Ronan had a lot of experience with electro-ceramics um, and had a good relationship with a factory. And we, we started with some piezoelectric products, mm-hmm. transducers yeah. and things mm-hmm. like that for... They're used in uh, ultrasound machines mm. and, you know, factory bath cleaning products and things like that. Very niche market. Um, and we, we actually sold a few, but uh, they came to us with a GPS, a ceramic GPS antenna and said, you know, we're, we're um, shipping thousands of these, hundreds of thousands of these a month. And they were going into the Garmin and TomTom SatNav units um, that were being made by two Taiwanese OEMs. So we thought GPS, there were GPS antennas and we thought they had a lot of uh, potential. So we started selling those, you know, and then once we started selling those, uh, we saw there was a big interest um, in that area. That was back in 2004. So it was, it was really starting to, to develop, um, particularly with cellular coming out and the, the um, ability to do um, Two, with 2G modules at the time, the ability mm-hmm. for people to design um, wireless devices themselves and incorporate GPS um, was really taken off in the area of stolen vehicle tracking really was the first area that we were in. Mm-hmm. Um, that was who, an up and who was your Who was your target customer there? So, so we started in the UK um, because it was, you know, for me, I'd experience selling in the UK and traveling around the UK and it's, it's, very cheap and easy to get there from Ireland. Um, and there, there had been, you know, a couple of companies who were doing stolen vehicle tra- tracking systems for Jaguar, Land Rover and people like that. If you had a, a car that was over a certain value, you needed to have a stolen vehicle 
tracking system for insurance. And we quickly learned that actually that market was very mature and was really taken off in South Africa. Um, so yeah, we, we, we started traveling down there. We had, we got a distributor down there. There's still our distributor there today, RF design. Um, and in South Africa, they had been using the paging network um, to track a vehicle. So if your vehicle got stolen, they pursued you with in a car or a helicopter with an antenna that was, you know, trying to keep keep a point to point communication with the car. Okay. okay. So when two G modules came out, they were able to, to design cellular devices that could could track them anywhere um, mm. without the need for those RF systems. So it kind of we did well in that market. We designed we had the GPS antennas and then in the UK we had a customer that was doing the systems for Jaguar Land Rover who had us design some um, antennas specific to that uh, use case and we were able to sell those antennas to other customers. Um, we got an investment um, of, we got an investment from Roland's friend, um, Tony McIntyre, who still, still has the same shareholding amount today. Mm-hmm. Um, so he gave us 50,000 euros um, and everyone thought he was off his rocker um, like I remember it was the day before my wedding I remember even my friends um, asking me how we were going to spend the money yeah. uh, <laughs> champagne yeah yeah that was the plan um, so we actually used that for tooling and, and, and costs for some of our uh, first uh, products and were you One getting that, was, that stuff then out of Ireland at this stage where were you no so the, the, we were getting the we were getting a subcontractor in Taiwan okay. to do the design and manufacturing. So yeah. we would just have to pay for the tooling and the parts. Nice. Um, there was I think there was still only two of us at that stage. So um, Ronan was in Taiwan doing all the um, product part, and I was back in Ireland doing all the sales. Dermot's trading experience has taken him from Europe to Asia, back to Europe and now on to the US where he's now based. The cultural and business differences between all three markets are enormous, as he explains. Yeah, I think that, you know, every, you know the US is famous for its, its business, you know, out, the way it looks at business. You know, things happen fast here. Um, they make decisions fast and they're risk takers. Um, mm. And then there's, there's an endless supply of funding and finance available. You know, I've seen people raise millions of dollars with a PowerPoint presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I was in your, we started selling in Europe first. And, you know, for me, I found France, Germany and, and these big markets in Europe. It's very slow. You know, you have to, you go to them first. We were a startup. Mm-hmm. So they said, we want to see you more established in the market. We came back to them a couple of years later with, with established UK and US customers. And then they would kind of say to you, well, we have to see you successful with other German or French customers. And then you go back to them again. Like I think, you know, we've been in with some of the large German companies for a while now. And then they'll say, okay, well, you know, let's try you out on a small project for a couple of years until we build up the relationship and get to know each other better. So it's it's a very slow thing to build up relationships in in, in Europe, build up the trust with customers. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the US, you know, if you're in the right place at the right time and, and your price is right and, and the product tests well, they'll, they'll give you a chance, you know, they'll take a risk on you. Um, so it happens much more 
quickly here. Like we got in, we set up here in 2010 and got in on large deals immediately, you know. Uh, mm. we, in fact, we got, we had a couple of large deals just from uh, supporting them from Ireland. Um, really? we I was going to ask that. Did you have to be there to, to, you know, some people do say that you have to have a presence in the U.S. Um, to do business in the U.S. I mean, time zones besides that, you know, is there a need to have, you know, people on the ground there? To scale it, yes. But like when you're working in the technology business and, you know, yeah. if your solution is right for the customer, you know, there's no like being from Ireland or having a company from Ireland is not a barrier to doing business in the United States, you know? Um, so it's, it's, you know, if, as long as you're as long, the only thing they would worry about is that, is that, that can, will you be around if things go wrong? Will you be there to pick up the phone? Are you going to be at the end of it? Mm -hmm. Um, but like we were, to be honest with you, um, mm -hmm. you know, but I remember that time back, in those years, but I remember both my wife and I were working in our jobs every evening, you know, mm. um, and we would, you know, would have the phones on and answer the phone if anyone calls you at any time, you know, um, and it's kind of still that way, to be honest, but, mm. um, you know, you'd, we would, customers number one and still is for us, so we'd always, you know, I remember a couple of customers recently telling me that they didn't even know I was in Ireland at the time. Yeah. You know, you see, so, the, the service and, and the support was just as important uh, to them as, as the actual product functioning as well. Do you know, I think people with a tech sort of um, focus sometimes, you know, don't think about the whole, you mentioned supply chain earlier um, and the support systems and what that looks like and the perception from the customer side um, of the whole package as well as everything else. So was that morning, noon and night then? It sounds like if you're dealing with, you know, if you're here in Ireland and you're dealing with, uh, Taiwan and you're also dealing with the US when on earth did you get to sleep because <laughs> they're on the opposite sides and the opposite uh, times of the day for doing business yeah um you know like it, it is in fairness but um you know you just you, you get used to it right so you know it's like at the moment I'm doing zoom calls in the mar in the morning early with Ireland and then with the US in in the morning and then I get a couple of hours off around lunchtime and then we've Zoom calls again with Taiwan in the evening, right? But, you know, you don't think about, oh, no, I'd rather have this or that. Like, we're in the middle of this pandemic and it's, you know, backs to the wall time, so you just get on with it. Um, but when you're in the startup mode, it's all, it's different. It's very exciting. Um, you know, it's, it's a great, um, you, you just get great, adrenaline rushes from you know talking to, to customers developing new opportunities um it's very exciting um mm. and you're learning as well as you go along you know um and like the, when you talk about the us and europe they, america loves the startup you know they love that entrepreneurial spirit mm. they, they applaud it um they like risk takers they're they're drawn to that type of scenario whereas mm. in in europe we're more conservative when it comes to the startup Mm -hmm. um and it's it's they're more comfortable like you know i've seen it like you know even mm -hmm. in ireland they'll they'll, they'll buy they'll buy a better a, a inferior more expensive solution from siemens because they're afraid to buy something from Towglass because we're not siemens mm -hmm. and that's and that's not the case in america as dermot said starting up is exciting however you do need luck and money how did Towglass get over the first few difficult pre-revenue years 
Yeah, well, um, we had we had Roland's friend Tony. Um, he 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 invested in us for the products, and mm. um, we had some funding from from New Frontiers. There was good support as well from Tom Banville and Wexford County Enterprise Board. It was called at the time. Mm. Um, so for our first employees back then, we had um, employment grants, and I remember Tom helped me do the first interviews. Okay. Um, with, with the first uh, employee we had, uh, Anya Doyle, who just, she only left us a couple of years ago. Um, and I think it was the same thing. You have to find somebody that that, that likes to start up, you know? Okay. Um, you know, you probably need your, like at that time, we had been in the Enniscorthy Enterprise Center first, which was great because you, um, you, 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 you have the use of the facilities and then you have also, you know, when you're not there, uh, FedEx or somebody can pick up packages. Somebody, somebody's there to answer the phone. Um, Siobhan and, and John O'Connor are still there, actually supporting startups today. Yes. Um, and so Tom helped me do the first interviews. But at that stage, it was in a log cabin out beside my house. So, um, you know, looking back, she she was probably mad to take the job. And Ronan was kind of in the same situation in Taiwan. He had more. He had probably four or five at the time. Yeah. Um, and it's just people that you know are willing to take a chance on you. Um, the second person we had was my sister-in-law, Alva. She's still with us today, so maybe there was mm -hmm. a bit of, yeah. bit of a family favor there. But like, it, you just have to find people that enjoy working in the startup environment. You know, um, obviously mm -hmm. you can't offer security. Um, yeah. You can't offer, you know, but you can offer if we're successful, you'll have good job job prospects because you're in early, yeah. and. You know, working in a startup, you get to experience a lot more because you have to touch every aspect of the business. So, um, you know, if you're the first person, you're going to be doing, you're going to have to learn about finance. You're going to have to learn how to talk technically. Mm. Uh, you're going to have to learn about an international supply chain, website design, the whole lot. So it's it's great training, but um, yeah, it's not for the type of person that we're you know, job security is important. From there, Tau Glass grew and grew, bouncing from one aspect of their industry to another as the entire technological landscape evolved around them. Yeah, I think when we started, it was, as I said, it was like, it was asset management and monitoring, you know, just um, putting putting boxes on things that were valuable in case they got stolen um, and tracking them if they were stolen. And that evolved into telematics and fleet management where the, the systems became a bit more sophisticated and could tell you, you know, not just where the driver was, but how he was driving and, and optimizing his route and, and um, making sure he didn't leave the engine running too long, that type of thing. And then it became a thing called machine to machine, um, which was, you know, putting these devices in applications beyond uh, vehicles. So, you know, oh, now I can monitor water meters, electricity meters, uh, medical devices, things like that. And then the, the term Internet of Things came out probably, I'd say about five years ago, mm -hmm. um, when we realized we're all, we all need to put those machines onto the Internet so that yes. I can basically log in and see how they're doing, right, remotely. Um, and, and that's where it's, it's taken us. So it's still a term that there's a lot of people outside of technology that don't know what it is um so you know we're talking now about digital strategy and digital transformation 
because every company knows what that is. Um, so they don't know what IoT is. So we're, we're kind of helping companies transform digit, digitally using IoT uh, to execute that. Um, so we've done like four acquisitions um, and, uh, you know, to get in, how to help, you know, we're in the, we're experts in RF and we have a lot of experience in RF and antenna design and designing and manufacturing antennas. The good thing about that is it's such an important part of a, of the, of an internet of things device and the success of an internet of things device. We've learned an awful lot about the market mm-hmm. and the different applications and the challenges involved in being successful. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with products and their delays and getting to market and stuff. So we've started helping customers in, in all aspects of that getting to market challenge, not just in antenna and RF design, um, but the overall hardware design and implementation. And now right into the you know, challenges around, well, how do I uh, adopt and incorporate this into my business? I need help with the platform. Or, okay, now I have all these uh, sensors out in the field. How do I um, make that data useful for my business? So we're, we're trying to move up, up the value chain you know, yeah. and every company in IoT is doing that. So some of our customers that were doing hardware before and buying antennas from us, they want us to do the hardware for them now because they're moving in. They want to become a SaaS business. Yeah, so, yeah. that's um, interesting. Key acquisitions along the way helped too. For example, Tauglass is clever move for FirmWave. Um, so how it was e- well, it was easy because we'd already been working with them, right? So we had seen the great work they did with a couple of. Um, uh, customers of ours in Ireland um, and then they also uh, worked for us on a project called Shift where we needed you know antenna design is becoming complicated with 5G you need beam steering so you need the cap- capability to do a chipset design with with you know firmware written to, to steer the antenna beams and firm wave did that for us um, working mainly with Ronan and the team there in Dublin so we got to know them that way. Um, so we had a partnership first. Um, and that's how, you know, we realized uh, we needed them as well. Then I think from the, as we move more into IoT, you know, um, it's hard to build up a team of software and firmware engineers from the start if you haven't done that before. Um, because we tried it a few years ago with a router project. Um, and it was very difficult for us to manage ourselves. Um, so, and then I think it was good timing for them as well in that they were very strong on the engineering side. Like I couldn't believe it when they told me that they, at the time they had 32 people in the company and 31 of them were engineers. Um, so, you know, they didn't have sales, marketing, they wanted sales channels and they wanted help on strategy and, 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 and help to scale the business you know and they felt we were um kind of already on that path a little bit and we could help them and um, scale their offering as well so it was a, it was a bit of a win-win and you knew each other there was a trust built up as well there's no perfect way to create a startup or begin a business however derma thinks a background in sales could really help a budding entrepreneur yeah i think i think sales is if you want to set up a business sales is the best training you can do mm. um you know, because as you say, that's it's even though you know salespeople get a lot of um, a lot of heat within companies and 
and and uh, you know everybody can they can everyone likes to love and hate them. Um, it is it is a tough job, you know. There's not many people that are comfortable cold calling and and you know making a hundred asks to get five yeses, you know, and and put up with the ninety five noes. So it's it's great training because it it also when you're doing sales, you you come across and touch, you know, so many different businesses. Um, and you learn about those businesses. So um, it's a great, great experience, especially if you can do some international sales as well. Um, so I, I think it's a great foundation for any, any business because, um, you know, I say today to everybody, we're all, we're all in sales really, you know, mm-hmm. um, whether you're in en- engineering or customer service or finance, you all have to talk to customers and um, we're all representing the company um and you know every, everybody's a salesperson so um i love sales still that's my favorite area okay. um and um i would yeah happily go back to it sometimes you know yeah that's interesting because i think uh, you're dead right we see people who are definitely shying away from the sales piece but we force them out to talk with customers because like you say you can't sell to the customer unless you know them you can't even provide for them unless you know them so in terms of selling, though, um, to different businesses, what types of businesses were you selling into in the early days? Maybe just before even the tow glass, what, what were you, uh, what were you learning? Who were you, who were you touching base with in some companies? Yeah, I think I was selling a lot of uh, logistics and freight services, um, so it was a great mixture of businesses back then. We had the Compass database, and you know, you just started with A, and and um, we had a very, uh, you know, basic strategy of you know how many calls you need to make a day how many people you need to get through to and of those amount of people you got through to uh, you had a target for the amount of face-to-face meetings you got and then based on that how many how many closures you had so it was a real kind of you know glen gary glen ross always be closing attitude um but you know when you start getting out and about um it you we, we were going to anybody basically the shipping goods internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so you come across a lot of companies in the electronics area, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but everything, you know, and, and you, you learn about international markets, the, some of the challenges businesses have with supply chain. Um, and then, you know, people talk, right. Especially in, in Irelanders, the, you know, you, you, people will, will tell you what's going on in the company. Um, as a salesperson, sometimes you can be like their therapist in that they vent uh, to you when you're coming in about what they don't like about the company. So, um, yeah, I love that. It. It's a great, a great way to learn. 